Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, reading from God's inerrant Word, beginning at verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them on the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women, the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We pray that You would quicken it to our lives. That uh, As Jesus prayed uh, long ago, that You would sanctify Your people by Your truth. Your Word is truth. And Father, it is our desire to tremble at Your Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> well, when I was on my vacation, I wasn't able to do any filleting of fish because I've got a, a bum arm, but that freed me up to do a lot of reading, which uh, was uh, real fun. I read through uh, three different books, uh, one of which was Dwyer's masterful uh, book on the war between the states. Uh, I just really enjoyed that. That stirred my uh, my heart when I just saw some of the the courage, uh, the boldness, the vision of, of men of God in that, uh, 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 that context. There were many ungodly things that happened in that war as well, many depressing things. But here were men who were willing to receive not only blessings from God's hands, but uh, many challenges from God's hands as well. And just putting their faith in Him, whether it was for ill or whether it was for good. And I don't know of a single uh, success story spiritually that has not also been faced with challenges. And uh, I want to talk about some of the blessings and the challenges that we need to uh, we need to receive by faith. There are some people, some pastors who wish they could have the kind of revivals that George Whitfield saw. But I doubt these people have what it takes to face the pain and the challenges that George Whitfield faced. Uh, there are parents who look with longing and envy, you know, at some of the things that are happening in other families. But the question is, are they willing to receive both challenges and blessings from God's hand? And the same could be true of businessmen and soldiers and statesmen. One of the most inspiring stories for me from the life of Elijah occurs in 1 Kings chapter 18. I love this story. It's the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. 
And prior to this, there was confrontation between Elijah and King Ahab. Uh, Ahab had been hunting him down because um, he had been praying that there would be no rain. And uh, when he finally meets Elijah, he says, you troubler of Israel. And Elijah says, no, you're the troubler of Israel because of all your sins. It's your fault. But what makes me just astonished at the boldness of Elijah is he commands this king to gather all of Israel together. I mean, this king could have right then killed him. (laughs) But he commands this king to gather all Israel together on Mount Carmel, gather his prophets, and we'll see who is the true God. And uh, he says to these 450 prophets of Baal that have gathered, if your God is the true God, then uh, let's see who calls down fire and uh, licks up the sacrifice. And so they're crying out all morning, hour after hour, and they are utterly unsuccessful. And he even starts mocking them, saying, well, maybe your God's on a journey. Maybe he's hard of hearing. Cry out louder. Maybe he's asleep and makes fun. But anyway, it's an utter failure. And Elijah, when it's his turn, tries to make it even more difficult. He pours buckets and buckets of water all over the sacrifice and uh, it fills up the trenches. And with a simple prayer, fire comes down from heaven, not only consumes the sacrifice and the wood, but the stones and the water that was in the trenches. And everybody says, you know, Jehovah is the true God. They're just amazed at uh, this uh, spectacle. And then he goes out and he kills 450 of these prophets. Now, when you read that kind of an account, you would never expect the kind of depression and discouragement and total wanting to give up that you see in the next chapter. Chapter 19, verse 4, it says, He sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, the reason I bring this up is that if... Even the prophets, even the greatest of the prophets, um, faced challenges from the hand of God. We can expect that we're going to face challenges as well. It's very important that we be aware that that will happen. And I think it's important that we face both the blessings and the challenges with the kind of faith that the Apostle Paul did in this chapter. I think this uh, scripture is just a wonderful scripture to challenge us, whether our ministry is formal or whether it is informal. Uh, Let's look first of all at the blessings. And we we might wish we could always have the blessings that we see in verses 42 through 44. Let's begin at verse 42. Paul sees people who are hungry for the Word of God. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Man, that would be encouraging. (laughs) Uh, We long for that kind of hunger for the Word of God in our children's lives. Uh, Elders long for that kind of hunger for the Word, you know, in their congregations. I'm sure the Anders wish that some of the politicians and others that they talk to were more concerned about the Word of God. I think every one of you have experienced this in some dimension. As you're bringing the Word of God to bear in life, you're just so discouraged. Why is it that people don't have this kind of a hunger? And it's a thrilling thing when you see people who are enthusiastic. And it's easy for you to get enthusiastic about your ministry <coughs> when people respond to what you are doing the way these Gentiles responded. We're going to be seeing in a moment it's important that we be faithful even when we don't have those kind of results. <coughs> but it would be very easy for us, even if we had these results, to ascribe them to our own power 
and our own abilities and to begin to be proud. My point is, we need God's grace when we receive blessings and we need God's grace when we receive challenges. Uh, It doesn't matter where we're at. We constantly need to depend upon the Lord. But this would indeed be a, a real sweet blessing for Paul. See people hungry for the Word. I don't think there's anything that makes... There are not very many things, I should say, that make my heart more glad than this. Probably the next point might supersede that a little bit to see uh, people who are converted, to see my children uh, making profession of faith. And in the second sentence in verse 48, Paul uh, summarizes some of the conversions that have been happening. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, Lord willing, next week I'm going to give a more extended uh, sermon just on that verse and the sovereignty of God in salvation. But uh, uh, when people come to faith despite enormous opposition, it is such an encouraging thing. It makes us weep. It makes all of the challenges just seem worthwhile. I think some of the ministry that I have done in China has been some of the most exhilarating in my life because you see the moving of God's Spirit in the lives of these people. You see people coming to Christ almost without even trying. And then these people hungry for the Word of God. And uh, uh, even without that, we should persevere. But I do want to encourage you to pray that God would give you this blessing of leading people to Christ. It's an incredible blessing. It's not just evangelists who should be involved in leading others to Christ. Uh, The Bible indicates it's sheep who need to bear sheep um, and reproduce. Another blessing is to see people finally getting it and learning how to appropriate God's grace for life and not just for conversion. Look at verse 43. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now, why would he have to persuade them to continue in the grace of God. You'd think if they had just experienced the grace of God and conversion, it would be the most natural thing in the world for them to want to continue in it. But we ought not to discount the power of our own flesh in uh, resisting the work of God, nor should we ever pit divine sovereignty against human responsibility. What often happens with new converts is that they come into the church and that's all that happens. There's no discipleship. There's no encouraging of these people to put off the flesh and to put on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of these churches, all they're concerned about, getting more converts and getting these converts to bring in more converts. And they're never discipled into holiness. And so you have people, Christians who have been Christians for maybe 10 years, and they've never discovered how to lick addictions, conquer anger, how to uh, overcome Uh, some of the besetting sins that they face uh, in life, learn communication skills, put off a bad work ethic. In fact, they've given up because they think that holiness is not possible. They've tried and they've tried and they've tried and they just think it just can't be done. What makes things worse is you've got these grace movement people, uh, and I'm a strong believer in grace, but people who preach and seem like they act like uh, this is the most normal thing in the world. Don't worry about it. You know, grace covers everything. You don't need to struggle. You don't need to be striving. And so these people give up even trying to do that. And so these young Christians have started with genuine grace, but they are not continuing in that grace. Okay, that's sanctification. Um, 
The fact that Paul had to persuade them shows that there has been some resistance. Our flesh is still alive even though we're converted. And so there's going to be some resistance. They needed to be persuaded. And it's very hard to get people to put off the old lifestyle. They're fearful many times of changing from what they're, they've been used to doing and putting on something brand new. But that's what God calls us to do. He calls us, uh, He says that we are being made new creation. All things are being made new. And uh, so there is a struggle of putting off the old and putting on the new. And for us to enjoy that new life, we can't strive in our own flesh because, as Jesus said, the flesh can only produce flesh. We must continue in grace just like we started in grace. And that's something that many Christians forget. They think uh, Christianity is just involved in trying harder or they give up. One of the two alternatives. In Galatians, Paul addresses this church that was established in Acts uh, chapter 13 He didn't have a lot of time to ground these people in the faith before he was kicked out. And so he writes to these people, especially since he's heard that some people have been teaching them the wrong thing. So here's what he says in Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect? Or some translate, are you now being made mature by the flesh? And the answer to the rhetorical question is no, absolutely no. And Paul does not believe in the false dilemma that people hold out that um, uh, either you have to choose between being legalistic Christians or sinful Christians. He's got a third alternative, and that is Spirit-empowered Christians. And... um, We start by grace, we must continue by grace, and that grace implied that there is an empowering that He gives to us. And when people finally get it, they finally get it and they begin living by grace, it's exciting for a pastor. I watched a movie some years ago, I don't remember the name of it, and I wasn't able to locate what the name of it was, but it was about a person who had been in prison most of his life, and he finally got released But he was scared outside. He didn't know how to live with the new freedoms and the responsibilities that had that he had. In fact, he wanted to go back into prison. He really wanted to bad. He was tempted to commit another crime so he could go back to the security of the regimen that he had been used to all of his life. It showed another person who had been released who actually ended up committing suicide because um, he wasn't able to cope with the new life that he had been sent to. Well, there was a guy that helped this one to learn. He persuaded him. It's not worth going back to prison. And he showed him how to live and put on the responsibilities of the freedom uh, to which he had been uh, given. And I thought that was such a great metaphor of what should happen for Christians. Instead of longing for the life that they're used to, you know, which is really prison, Uh, the securities that they had and the familiar, easy way of doing things, they need to be persuaded to live as free men and women. And maybe some of you have been called by the Lord to stand alongside of uh, young believers and to persuade them to stand in the liberty and the joy and the freedom and the power that the Holy Spirit can give to people. It does take some persuading. And maybe there are some here who are just used to living to the status quo. You've given up yourselves. And if that's the case, I want you to talk to me. 
because I not only love to persuade people that it is possible, but to show them the step-by-step processes of overcoming their sins and uh, living in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the last few weeks, I'm getting more and more testimonies of people who have experienced, they say, for the first time in their lives, some of the power of the Holy Spirit just because they started fasting. Now, they wondered at the time, what in the world could fasting do? What in the world could there be a relationship between that and the other? And when they started fasting, they didn't hear any bells or whistles or, uh, you know, angelic voices or anything like that. But by faith, they said, okay, if God wants me to do it, I'm going to do it. And lo and behold, they began to experience a grace and victory they had never been able to achieve before. And the reason for that is they were willing to be persuaded. They were willing to try God's weak foolish ways that actually end up being brilliant and very strong. They were willing to walk in God's grace. Another blessing is when we experience remarkable times of success. And I don't know any minister that wouldn't love the kind of uh, success that happened in Antioch where the Spirit of God is poured out. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the Word of God. Uh, One book I have says this has to be an exaggeration. After all, this is a pretty big city. Almost the whole city came together. Uh, Another commentary says, quote, Luke abandons all realism of presentation for the sake of depicting Paul as a great orator and successful missionary. In other words, he's lying to get across his point. Let's be blunt here. He's telling a fisherman's tale, a pastor's, uh, you know, fib in order to get across the point. But, you know, that is simply not characteristic of Luke. Even secular authorities have said Luke has been exceedingly careful in the historical details that he has written about, the speeches, the numbers. And there is no reason that we should not take this literally. Almost the whole city came together to hear the Word of God. There have been times down through history where almost entire regions have become Christian in a matter of weeks. Uh, It's uh, happened in... A number of times in the Asia and Pacific Islands, Papua New Guinea, Irian Jaya, Indonesia, and there's other places as well. But I want to read you an account uh, where it's happened in America. I would love to see it happen again in Omaha, but it's happened in America. I think most of you have heard about John Wesley and George Whitfield and some of the other uh, people that the Lord used in the first Great Awakening. Well, when Whitfield traveled around America preaching in the 1700s, He found himself preaching to tens of thousands of people every single day. Uh, One day, there was 30,000 people that he was preaching to. In fact, Benjamin Benjamin Franklin, uh, he had a hard time believing that this was even possible. He went, he measured, he calculated, and he was just blown away with what was happening uh, in, in these crusades. Now, here's the interesting thing. Before the revival, John Wesley and George Whitfield preached exactly the same way and had not anywhere near the results. After the revival ended, they didn't have the same results. It had nothing to do with their preaching. It had everything to do with the sovereign moving of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what was going on in verse 44. Almost the entire city was responsive. Another blessing that we long for is to see God's Word being glorified rather than seeing preachers glorified or seeing other people being glorified. Look at verse 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the Word of the Lord. They glorified the Word of the Lord. They were not wrapped up in Paul or in his team. They were struck by God Himself. 
God's Word captivated their hearts. It is not glorifying to the Word of God when there are movements around personalities, uh, when there are programs, you know, that pull people in, but it's an outward thing. That does not glorify the Word of God. It's not a blessing when people stream in because of outward reasons, but it is a blessing of God when they glorify the Word of God. It's a, it's a demonstration of, of a reformation. And that should be the goal in our lives, that we glorify His Word. Now, we might ask, how do we glorify the Word of God? Say four things. You glorify the Word of God by believing it. There's no way God's Word is glorified if you don't believe it. Secondly, you glorify the Word of God by obeying it. There are people who say they believe the Word of God, but they're not living it out. And thirdly, we glorify the Word of God uh, by acknowledging that it has a power to change people. After all, it is called something that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And then fourthly, and ultimately, we glorify the Word of God by making it the measure and the standard for everything that we do. It is not glorifying the Word of God if we do not see it as sufficient for life and practice. It's not glorifying to the Word of God when pastors uh, put more confidence in psychology for their counseling than they do in the Word of God. It's not glorifying to the Word of God when the Word of God is excluded from the public arena or from political decisions. And uh, what a blessing it is for me when I see our young people uh, getting into debates sometimes, but just sometimes friendly discussions in which God's Word is being brought to bear on politics and on all kinds of different issues. It does my heart good. Verse 49 indicates that the sharing of the Word spread and prospered all throughout Galatia. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Now, every pastor has had times in his ministry where it seems no matter what he does, it doesn't seem to be having any impact. And other times where everything that he is doing seems to be prospered uh, by the Lord. Uh, that is very, very common. Now, our longing is not just to see God's Word impacting our local congregation, but we should long to see it spreading into Nebraska and Iowa and throughout America and to the ends of the earth. And uh, two weeks ago, when I was um, looking at some of the statistics on our websites, I was very encouraged to see the number of countries that are downloading materials, not only from Biblical Blueprints, but from Dominion Covenant Church uh, website. Uh, people have been accessing and downloading materials from England, Canada, Russia, Belgium, New Zealand, Germany, Egypt, Colombia, Brazil, Australia, Sweden, Netherlands, Japan, South Africa, Christmas Island, and even 278 hits in the last month from the Seychelles Islands. I wondered, where in the world are Seychelles Islands? Well, it's off the east coast of Africa. But it does my heart good when I see the Word of God spreading wherever uh, throughout the world. But you can also think of the Word of God spreading to your descendants. I mean, what a cool thing it will be to see uh, how the Word of God impacts not just our children, but when they're bringing it to bear in their children and their children's lives. But seeing the Word of God spreading far and wide. The last blessing that I want to highlight is given in verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice that this joy of the Holy Spirit did not occur in a mood chamber with candles burning. <laughs> it did not occur, you know, in a big cathedral with uh, stained glass windows. It occurred in the midst of some of the most stressful ministry that Paul had been experiencing. 
with incredible opposition from the Jews and uh, with eventually getting kicked out of that region. And the point is, many times God's greatest blessings come in the midst of the things we fear the most, the challenges that many times we do not want to take on. So when we avoid the challenges, many times we're going to be missing out on the blessings as well. What a blessing it is, though, to have God's joy, His presence, His empowering when things go tough. And if you've not experienced that joy, you need to cry out to God. Say, Lord, I'm dry. I want the joy of the Lord to be my strength. Now, God's not holding out on us uh, for no reason. God delights in making His people joyful. In John 15, verse 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Now, when your cup of joy is full, it means you can't fit any more joy in, right? You're so joyful, you couldn't experience, you can't imagine experiencing any more joy. And he says his purpose for his people is that his joy would remain, not just be transitory. It would remain in us and our joy would be full. So if you're not experiencing the joy of the Lord, I encourage you to read John chapter 15 to find out what he was talking to them about so that your joy can be full. You might have some surprises in that chapter. The same is true of the giving of the Holy Spirit. In Luke 11, Jesus compares the Father, the Heavenly Father, to a human Father who's generous with food and with good things that He gives to His children. And then in verse 13, He says, How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so seek God's blessings in the midst of the challenges that you're facing. Well, let's uh, look at the challenges that Paul and his team had been facing. And we'll begin at verse 41. This is in the middle of his sermon that we had looked at last time. He says, Behold, you despisers. Paul could probably sense there were some people in the congregation just were not liking uh, what he had been preaching to them. They despised the truth. And it's a remarkable thing if, as Jesus said, the truth shall make you free, the people don't want to hear the truth. You would expect that people would want the truth if the truth indeed sets them free. And yet, all throughout the Scripture, you see exactly the same thing happening. Revelation 22.15 describes unbelievers as those who are loving and practicing a lie. They love a lie. Lies make them comfortable in their sins and in their autonomy. They love a lie. If they were to believe the truth, that would mean that they would have to take up their cross and follow after Christ. They would have to die to self and live for God's glory. And so you find Hosea 4 verse 1 saying, The Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth in the land. They despise the truth. Now, Jeremiah 9 verse 5 says, Everyone will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. Verse 3 he complains, They are not valiant for the truth on the earth. And those who have been involved in ministry very long, uh, they not only get discouraged that there are so many despisers of the truth out there in the world, but that there are despisers of the truth in the church. And after all, that's the context here. This was the Jewish synagogue. That was the Jewish church. They had not yet been totally cut off uh, by uh, Paul and by others. He was speaking to the Jewish church. And sometimes this despising of the, church, of the truth by the church can be camouflaged. It can be very polite. But whether it's bold and hostile like occurred here, or whether it's a polite ignoring of the truth, suppressing of it, rationalizing of it, it's still a despising 
of the truth. And that can be a very discouraging thing when our children despise the truth. You preach it to them. You say, look, you're ruining your lives. Why are you not following the truth? And they despise it. It's a discouraging thing for elders as well. And yet God strews the blessings in the midst of those kinds of challenges. And I don't want you to be blind to God's blessings simply because there are some challenges that you are facing. Envy is another challenge that ministries face. Uh, verse 45 says, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Now, we're not told why they had envy. Uh, maybe they had been trying to win Gentiles and had been unsuccessful. And here's Paul in one day, you know, he's got almost the whole city coming around. Uh, or maybe the Gentiles were sitting in their favorite pew, although I doubt this was in the synagogue where they were all gathering. It would not have been big enough to accommodate them. Um, maybe uh, they were feeling threatened. We don't know why it was that they were envious, but I'll tell you something. Envy is a very powerful tool of Satan to try to destroy ministry. People can be envious of the pastor's uh, position, his following, his salary, or any other number of things. And here's what envy does. Envy says, if I can't have it, I don't want that person to have it. And if I can't keep that person from having it, I'm going to try to destroy that person in the process. Envy is not simply uh, looking for uh, something for themselves to have. Uh, 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 envy is also a destructive force. And so here's my admonition. Don't let the envy of others, when they see what you are doing and envy grips their hearts, don't let it rob you of your joy. Just forget about them. Focus on the Lord. The next challenge that we see is contradiction of Paul in verse 45 and then rejection of the truth in verse 46. Verse 45 speaks of contradicting. That would be arguing against Paul. Then verse 46 says, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And that was a good strategy. You know, if these people aren't prepared by God's Spirit to receive it, let's focus on the people who are. And yet, where do many pastors spend most of their time? putting out fires, focusing on the squeaky wheels, you know, the people who are constantly complaining and uh, who are probably going to leave anyway after you've spent all of the time working with them. Did you know that there are websites out there whose sole purpose is to tear down ministries and try to destroy the theology of people like D. James Kennedy and Doug Phillips and Peter Hammond and other people like that? And these are set up by Christians. Okay, it's astonishing to me the vitriol that you see on these websites is unnerving almost to see what how in the world would these people be doing that? And so we need to realize people are quite capable of this. Total depravity guarantees it and sometimes produces the most irrational opposition. And of course, we need to make sure we're not following into that kind of uh, negativism ourselves. Fourth challenge is listed in verse 45 as blaspheming. That's a puzzling one. Some people have wondered, why in the world would a Jew be involved in blaspheming? Because they were so worried about blaspheming, they didn't even put the name of God on their lips in case somehow they would use the name of God in vain. But you see, they didn't think that Jesus was the Messiah, so they didn't think speaking against Jesus was blaspheming. And there are many times it's out of ignorance, out of emotional outbursts, that people will blaspheme against the name 
of uh, the Lord. And let me give you an example of this in our own day. There are people who insist that all miracles, all manifestations of the Spirit are from Satan. That God doesn't do that anymore, therefore it must be from Satan. Well, Jesus indicates that's walking on pretty thin ice. That's pretty dangerous to do because when the Pharisees accused Jesus when He did miracles of casting out demons by the prince of the demons, Beelzebub, He said they had committed the unpardonable sin. He said any sin, any blasphemy against the Son of Man, that will be forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But in any case... Um, when you're on the front lines trying to do good in the name of Jesus, you will eventually have people blaspheming God in their opposition to you, and it can hurt. It can just uh, make you feel very uneasy. Now, these people weren't content simply to speak against Jesus. In verses 45 and 50, they spoke against Paul. And some of the opposition came from the most unexpected sources. Now, who would have thought that the devout women of that city would have stooped to this? And yet, look at verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their, that region. Now, the word for devout is used in Acts to mean God-fearing. Uh, it can be translated in, and, and it is translated variously as pious, holy, God-fearing, uh, devout, and so, you wouldn't have expected opposition from people who are believers in the true God. They've not become Christians. They were, uh, they were Jews, but they were believers, devout believers in the true God. And yet, this happens all the time. Just witness uh, some of godly people on both the north and the south who were fighting against each other and throwing barbs at each other in the war between the states. And you can think of churches where this kind of thing has happened. Now, this hurts a whole lot worse than when you're opposed by a pagan, when you're opposed by devout uh, believers. Anytime you're involved in frontline ministries, you can expect that Satan will stir up slander and persecution against you. By the way, that word uh, to stir up, uh, that deals with the emotions. Uh, it's uh, inflaming the emotions. And if you are a person who tends to quickly react, you know, to the rhetoric of a speech or the reading of a book, I mean, it's very easy to get angry, you know, when you read books like the one I just read. But if you're a person who thinks and acts out of emotion, you can very easily end up doing what these devout women here did against Paul. Very, very important that you not allow your emotions to control your behavior that you think. Uh, clearly from your head. George Whitfield was frequently slandered by both believers and unbelievers. And one time, he received a false accusation in the mail. And here was what his simple reply was. I thank you heartily for your letter. As for what you and my other enemies are saying against me, I know worse things about myself than you will ever say about me. With love in Christ, George Whitfield. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. Didn't even try to defend himself. And he said, you know, really, I'm a lot worse than you think I am. <laughs> but he was so secure in his relationship with Christ and the presence of the Lord in his life that what other people thought of him did not matter that much to him. Uh, his attitude and all of these things, just keep ministering and not allow the challenges of ministry to get him down. And I would encourage you to do the same. Now, you're going to have a tough time doing that if... 
you have an orphan spirit as opposed to a sonship spirit. And if you're one of the ones who constantly needs to be patted on the back and you need the approval of others to move on, I would strongly encourage you to pray through and work through that outline that I gave to you some time back on the difference between an orphan spirit and a a sonship spirit. Uh, We need to get to the place where we have such security in God that we're able to face these challenges uh, with metal. But what happened in verse 50 could have easily made Paul and Barnabas give up. Fantastic ministry going on in the city. Uh, They would have loved to have stayed to see it come to maturity. The majority in the city are open to this ministry, open to the gospel, and yet they're completely cut off by the authorities. And that could be a hard blow. And by the way, this happened to Paul a number of times, to Paul and Barnabas. It would be sort of like a pastor getting ejected from several different churches. And uh, it'd be very tempting to say, maybe I'm not called to the ministry. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I'm going to give up. I can't do this anymore. Jonathan Edwards was forced out of a church because of a false accusation that he had committed adultery uh, with a lady. The lady brought the, uh, the accusation against him and there were no witnesses, but there were people who were taking sides on this and he didn't know what to do. People said, well, you've got to defend yourself. And he says, well, how can I defend myself? It's her word against my word. He says, I'm just going to leave it up to God. But he had to leave. The Lord opened up another ministry that he could be involved in. And sometime later, this woman, under conviction of sin, confessed to her elders that the charge she had brought was 100% uh, uh, false. She was just angry at Jonathan Edwards for his meddling preaching. <laughs> It just, it, it just really bothered her. And so all those who engage in ministry can face similar blessings and challenges. And I want to outline quickly three prayer requests that we can be offering up on behalf of each other uh, so that we can handle these things well. First, pray that we would take advantage of divine appointments quickly. When there was a response to the gospel in verses 42 and following, Paul and Barnabas did not waste a day. And it's a good thing they didn't because they didn't have much time in Galatia. Uh, they sprang on the opportunity as soon as the Lord landed it in their lap. And when opportunities come our way, it's very easy for us to consider our own creaturely comforts rather than God's glory. We might think, man, it'd be a whole lot more convenient if I did that next week or two weeks from now. But right now I've got so many emails. I've got a yard to mow. I've got so many different things. But when the next week comes by, the ministry opportunity has completely vanished. We don't have it anymore. Maybe we're on an airplane and we're riding along and the person beside us wants to talk and we're wanting to read and uh, we're sensing that this person has had some hurts in their lives. Maybe they're open to the gospel, but we got to find out what's at the end of that novel. So we bury our head in that novel and we let the opportunity just completely slide by. Now, it's not as if God is in the business of making us joyless and taking away any fun that we could have. He delights in delighting us. But when He puts divine appointments into our path, we've got to be right there. We've got to take advantage of them at that moment or it may fly by us. Second, when opposition arises, adjust your ministry, but don't quit. It must have been discouraging for Paul to have this uh, huge opposition from the Jews, totally hostile to him. But instead of giving up, he adjusts his ministry. He focuses on those who are willing. And then later on, 
He adjusts it once again when he's kicked out of that region by the authorities. Instead of giving up, he moves on to Iconium, which was nearby. And uh, God gave him a very fruitful ministry there. And to me, Paul and Barnabas are modeling how not, how to not allow discouragement to make us give up. <clears throat> one man said, discouragement is a negative emotion with more than one trick up its dark sleeve. It tricks you into mentally or emotionally dwelling in the very place you want to leave. And I thought, wow, that's exactly right. Discouragement makes us sit in a place we don't want to be or to move to a place we don't want to be in. Let me just read that again. Discouragement is a negative emotion with more than one trick up its dark sleeve. It tricks you into mentally or emotionally dwelling in the very place you want to leave. Now, in Paul's situation, discouragement, I think, could have tempted him to give up preaching. Even though there was success to give up preaching. People so focus on the negative challenges that are happening that it clouds and blinds their eyes to, the, to, to what is good. And uh, it makes them give up. Well, he refused to do that. He made adjustments, but he never stopped moving forward into the calling that God had given to, to, to him. And yet, how many times do we allow discouragements to make us give up on the desires that we have? God-given desires. Let me read you an example from a famous American. This article said, Cable television tycoon Ted Turner has often been quoted as being critical of fundamentalist Christianity. Turner made some very revealing marks at a banquet in Orlando, Florida in 1990 where he was given an award by the American Humanist Association for his work on behalf of the environment. Turner said he had a strict Christian upbringing and at one time considered becoming a missionary. I was saved seven or eight times, the newspaper quoted him as saying, but he said he became disenchanted with Christianity after his sister died despite his prayers. He had allowed challenges to completely disillusion him. And I want to ask you guys, have some of you quit praying, quit ministering, given up heart because God has not answered your prayers? If you have, you're doing exactly what Ted Turner uh, had done back then. If Paul and the other apostles had done that, we would probably not be Christians sitting here today. The last thing I would encourage you to pray for your leaders and to pray for yourselves is that you would be driven with a sense of God's call upon your hearts. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have to have three things in place. First of all, you need to know that what God has called you to. What God has called you to do. And then you need to do it and stick to it. Paul's call was given in chapter 9 and it profoundly changed his life. It drove him on. And a sense of God's call can enable you to persevere in the face of some of the most difficult challenges. Now, most Christians, I don't think, have the foggiest notion what God has called them to do. And when I'm talking about calling, I'm not saying uh, uh, calling into what we think of as church ministry. Uh, I think most of the time, God's call upon a person is really involved in their work. He has put a divine burden and gifting and desires into their lives. And despite discouragements in business, they keep on it and they keep on it. And God gives them success and they bring glory to God in the area of their work. Sometimes people have multifaceted uh, callings. I think of Eric Liddell, who was called as a missionary to uh, China and his sister could not understand why he would go to the Olympics. She said that the Olympics are diverting you from God's call upon your life. And he said, well, I am called to China, 
But I also feel God's call upon me here. And I love the way that the dialogue goes on in the, the movie Chariots of Fire. By the way, if you've never seen that movie, you've got to watch it. That's a wonderful, wonderful movie. But um, he felt God uh, called him to use his gift of running as well. He said, God made me to run. And He made me to run fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. And there are people who feel God's pleasure upon their lives when they're doing the simple tasks and the, the jobs that they have. I know one person who uh, feels the call of God upon him to be involved in, as a civic magistrate. And he's doing a great job, but he feels a strong sense of God's call and it enables him to persevere despite the fact he is ridiculed. And he's got all kinds of nasty things that are set against him uh, in his work. Some people are called to be writers. Uh, others are called to be the best wives and moms that they can be and to share in their husband's calling. And it gives them great satisfaction to know God's smile of approval is on what I'm doing. What I'm doing is significant because I know God's called me to do this. But calling was a key to overcoming discouragement for Paul. And I think it's a, an important key for each one of us as well. One theologian said, dissatisfaction and discouragement are not caused by the absence of things, but the absence of vision. I think he's right. The people who have the strongest vision are the least susceptible to discouragement and giving up. And so, first of all, know your call. Second, live out your calling even when that calling has a he-must-suffer clause in it. And Paul's did. In chapter 9, verse 15, God told Ananias to go to Paul, give him this message. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before kings, Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, if you know that every one of us has a he or she must suffer clause in our calling, then it will help us to not get disillusioned when we do receive challenges in our ministry. Because it's guaranteed we're going to receive uh, 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 we're going to receive uh, uh, difficulties and it's the people who think they never will who are the ones who get disillusioned. And I think it's interesting that Paul uses the term calling for slaves who didn't have a choice in what they were doing. Now, he said, if you can get your freedom, fine, that's, that's great. Get your freedom. But even a slave, he says, can have a sense of God's call upon his life. Now, the point is that our calling is not always to fun. Sometimes it's boring. And uh, some of you may have times in your job, you know, you know, this is what you're gifted to do. This is the job that God has given to you. But you feel this dissatisfaction because it's boring. Well, get over it. <laughs> Life many times is boring. And that's not what the Christian is called to do, to always have a fun and excitement in his life. And a sense of your calling can help you with that. And I think I've mentioned this before, but the book, uh, InterVarsity Press book, Take This Job and Love It. And I don't know who the author of that is uh, anymore. I'd have to look it up. But uh, that book can help you to see your boring job in terms of how it is a service uh, to the Lord God. Uh, this is really, I think, what makes the Reformed faith such a blessing is that everything in life is sacred. Every aspect of life can be seen in terms of God's calling. Now, lastly, live out your calling even when that call seems impossible to achieve. 
I love the story of William Wilberforce. It was recently turned into the movie Amazing Grace. He felt strongly the call of God upon his life to do away with slavery uh, in England. And many people said, this is impossible. There's no way that you're going to be able to succeed in this. But his strong sense of call made him persevere and finally achieve that despite all kinds of obstacles at the end of his life. And when we're talking slavery, we're not talking about the the mild form of indentured servitude that the Old Testament talked about in terms of paying off debts and things like that. We're talking about a very vicious, unbiblical, uh, horrible institution of slavery. And God enabled him to persevere despite people trashing him and despite the fact that he himself said, man, this seems impossible, but God has called me to, 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 to do this. Paul knew what his life was about. He was to preach to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And in an environment where it was so politically incorrect to be bringing these Gentiles into the, into the church, he had to keep reminding himself with Scripture as well. Verse 47, For the, so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, there are a lot of people to this day who think that's an impossible task. Okay? The eschatology says it's impossible. But you know what? Every calling of God is impossible. He always calls us to live in terms of the supernatural. The calling of God that He placed upon my life in 1979 is just as gripping to me now as it was back then. But it's just as impossible now as it was back then as well. In addition to being called to pastoral work, the Lord's calling was heavy upon my life to be used in any way that the Lord sees fit to bring reformation to the church and transformation of society. Those twin, twin things have driven me right from the time of 1979 to the present. And in the intervening years, I've seen some sweet blessings and some successes. But I tell you, there have been a ton of challenges that Satan has raised up to try to make me give up. And a strong sense of that calling has made me say, I don't care whether I succeed immediately or not. I'm going to persevere in what God has called me to do. And I pray that your sense of calling, that you pray to the Lord to give to you and to give it to you stronger and stronger would also carry you through not only the blessings, but carry you through the challenges of ministry as well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for Your presence in our lives and the call that You put upon uh, each believer. And I pray that the sense of Your calling in our lives uh, would drive us, whether You've called us uh, to glorify You within the business arena, within sports, within writing, wherever it may be that You have called us, may we be a shining light there, not giving up, not compromising, not in any way doing discredit to Your name, but Father, uh, seeking to live it out despite the impossibilities that people throw in our faces. I pray that we would embrace both the blessings as well as the challenges of ministry and do so to Your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.